Well, good morning. Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> Let's uh, just start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you to consider your dear son and your servant John the Baptist. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will guide us as we seek to understand and that you will inspire each of us <clears throat> that the spirit that is in your word and that was in your son and is in him might be in us and that really we might walk with him and have his spirit with us, knowing that if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. <clears throat> and so, Father, we're here because we seek from your word, from the Gospels, to find the Spirit of Christ, to know him, that we might make him known. Please help us, for his sake. Amen. Well, <clears throat> Matthew 11, verse 1, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, <clears throat> he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. <clears throat> well, commanding... Uh, this connects back with uh, chapter 10 that we, we looked at last time where the Lord sends them out uh, to, to preach. And this uh, uh, Greek word that's translated, commanding it, it really means to give to each a specific task. And so it seems to me that the Lord gave to each of them a specific task in terms of taking the gospel to certain people. Whilst he left them to, to get on with that and he went to uh, preach in their towns, in their hometowns. Now, this makes a bit of sense of the, the later parable about each servant being given a specific work to do. And Peter talks about this when he says that there are good works which were before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, what I think that means is that God in the bigger picture has set up certain potentials for us specifically in this matter of witness. Because the way that he works is not to parachute his word down in front of somebody, but his way is to work through us, to work through people. But as soon as you start to work through people, as soon as you delegate authority, straight away you run the risk. You run the risk that it, the harvest might be spoilt because the reapers don't do their job, or because you can't get enough workers, and so on and so forth. And that is very much the risk that, if you like, God's enterprise uh, stands because of our weakness. But he has, uh, it seems to me, intended for each of us to take the gospel to certain people. You can get a hint of this when Paul talks about uh, how he's not going to preach in a certain area because that's not his uh, area that's been mapped out for him. That's how he writes to the Corinthians. But he's going to another one because he says, that has been mapped out for me. So then, what I'm saying is that there are people in your life to whom it is God's intention that you should take the gospel and therefore pray to God every day for meetings with those people, for the right words with those people, for the vision to perceive who those people are. And once you get... Uh, sort of on a roll in that way of living and that way of thinking, you'll find that life opens up before you, that suddenly everything makes sense. He went, uh, the Lord went to preach in their towns. Now, <clears throat> he, he went to their hometowns without their personal presence. So I think that this was specifically in order to back up their witness in their own immediate families and localities. And I think that the intention of the Lord Jesus was that his body, that is the community of believers in him, was really to be a network of house churches, 
of individuals who had converted their family, their immediate circle of acquaintance. And that is how I think it historically developed in the first century. There were not big churches. There is no archaeological evidence, and this is not for want of looking, for any large church building anywhere in the first century. The most one can find is uh, wealthy Roman homes where clearly <clears throat> there was a room set aside for Christian meeting. In Pompeii uh, particularly, that, that sort of thing has been discovered. But again, these were house churches. And so that, I think, was, uh, was the Lord's intention. And that they should perhaps, as in Corinth, the, the groups of house churches in Corinth did occasionally gather together uh, and hold certain meetings. I think one can deduce that from the, the letter to the Corinthians. The way that we're living in the 21st century is so different, is so radically different to, I think, how things were envisaged. It's not our fault that we exist in a certain uh, space and time kind of structure. Uh, it's not our fault, in other words, that, that we're human in the 21st century. But it just, uh, it just does strike me that the whole idea of going to church with a, a large congregation, uh, etc., uh, meeting in, in a large hall uh, of some description is not really, I don't think, the spirit that the Lord had in mind. He wanted people, first of all, to take Christ to their families, that he has so much to say about family. He talks a lot about family rejecting you, and also you finding a new family in Christ. So he sent two of his disciples... Uh, verse 2, sorry, John sent two of his disciples to Jesus. And th this connects with Matthew 10, where the Lord Jesus has just sent out his disciples uh, by two to, to take the good news of Jesus to people. And it's sort of rather set up, I think, in a, in a way to sort of uh, be rather negative about John, that he sends his two disciples to query whether Jesus is even the Messiah. Now, what we're going to read here about John the Baptist is, I, I'll, I'll tell you the conclusion from the start, um, in my opinion, this is a blip on the screen with John. This is uh, a wavering of faith, which, and a wavering certainly of understanding, which is unfortunate. And yet, what is so encouraging is the way the Lord Jesus deals with this, that although the record is not hiding uh, his, his weakness, Yet it's so positive about him. Now, those, uh, sorry, he, he knew Jesus was to do uh, mighty works, but, okay, he'd only, I guess, heard that they were happening by, by report. Now, those who had, he sends out um, had actually seen these mighty works, because in verse 4, Jesus says, go and tell John the things which you do see and hear. So it seems that John's disciples had seen and heard things that John maybe had not. So it all reads rather negatively about John, and he dies, it seems, in this negative state of mind. But straight away, you think of the records of the kings of Israel and Judah, particularly of Judah, where... They're, they're fascinating records, those historical accounts, because you can read of a guy who, who, well, did pretty well in his life, but then he clearly messes up at the end. And yet, despite Ezekiel saying that if you're good for your life and then you're naughty at the end, well, sort of, that's tough, you, you've lost it. 
Um, and a lot of those kings who appear to be sort of in that category, and yet the overall record of them is that they were good guys, spiritually speaking. In other words, there is evidence in the record of the history of the kings that God does look at the overall uh, picture of a man's life. Uh, rather than how he ends, although how you end is, of course, so eternally important. Another example would be Gideon. I mean, he ended, according to judges, pretty negatively with idol worship and a huge number of wives and uh, uh, so on and so forth. And yet, in Hebrews 11, he is listed as a man of faith. It's as if the, the good parts of his life were not insignificant to God, even though At the end, maybe he was not as he should have been. So, John sends these two to ask Jesus, are you he that should come, or do we look for another? Now, what was John preaching? And don't forget, Jesus was his cousin, and he baptized Jesus. I mean, he didn't know him personally. He had heard the voice from heaven when he baptized Jesus that said, this is uh, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He had said, lo, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'd said, this is the one that I was preaching about. And he'd said, I am the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and here he is. He's come, just as I said. And yet now he says, are you he that should come, or do we look for another? Well, it's a bit hard to understand this phrase, he that should come, because we can assume it means Messiah, Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You can't understand it as Messiah, but you can also understand he that comes, the one to come, the coming one, to be the Elijah prophet. Um, Because in Malachi 3, verse 1, that is exactly the phrase that is used about the Elijah prophet, that he is the one to come, who shall prepare the way of the Lord. Now, it could be that John had got into thinking that Jesus was actually the Elijah prophet, and all he was was the guy heralding the Elijah prophet, rather than him being Elijah. Now, he had said that Uh, when he was preaching about Jesus, that Jesus was going to be like a refiner's fire. That's in Matthew 3, verse 12. And yet that is exactly Malachi's language in Malachi 3, 2 and 4, 1 about the Elijah prophet, that he will refine the children of Israel to make them ready for the Lord Jesus. So when he says in verse 3, are you he that should come, or do we look for another? I think the, the point is, uh, it could, he could be meaning, are you the Messiah, or is another one going to come? Or he could mean, are you the Elijah prophet, or are we looking for another one? So he's getting confused, isn't he? Um, and yet, that confusion, I have to say, was there, I think, even during his uh, John's ministry. Because when they say to him, are you Elijah, he says, no, I'm not. And yet, as we're going to read on here in, in chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 14, Jesus says, if you will receive it, this was Elijah. He was the Elijah prophet, and Jesus was the Messiah that the Elijah prophet heralded. So, John had preached specifically that Jesus was to be the Son of of God, Uh, quite specifically, and the Lamb of God, who was going to take away the sin of the world, etc. 
And yet, he seems to have these, these crises. He had had these crises, maybe through humility, saying, no, I'm not Elijah prophet, I'm just a voice in the wilderness, or maybe a crisis of understanding. And so, <clears throat> now when he's at a low point in his life, and he's there in jail, uh, I guess guessing that he, he might die, um, <clears throat> he, he has this crisis of faith and a crisis of understanding. Now, <clears throat> when he says, do we look for another, that Greek word that's translated another, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the verb that comes from the noun uh, is translated altered in Luke 9, verse 29. You might like to just scribble that down. So he's saying, are you the one that should come, or do we look for another, for an alteration, for an alternative, for uh, some sort of revised game plan? Now, it seems to me that the lesson we can take from John's crisis is that he had had this very sort of um, <clears throat> mechanistic, uh, pedestrian, predictive idea of prophecy, whereby he figured, look, if I'm the Elijah prophet, then after me there must come Jesus. You know, according to Malachi and all that, uh, Isaiah 40, I'm going to be the, the, uh, the voice in the wilderness, I'm going to make the, the way plain because they're all going to repent, uh, and then they're going to be ready, and Messiah's going to come, and the kingdom of God's going to be established. And yet, basically, although a lot of people were dipped in water by him, it's quite clear that his ministry didn't really succeed. I mean, later on in Matthew 16, the Lord says to the disciples, who do people really say that I am? And they say, oh, some people say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But they don't give us an option there. Oh, some people think, some people believe what John the Baptist said about you, that you're the Son of God, and you're the Messiah. You're the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Nobody said that. Or they didn't say that, you know, that that's what some people think. In other words, John's ministry had not really converted anybody more than the twelve disciples and basically a couple of, couple of hookers. I mean, that was basically it. He hadn't had that success. So, there he was thinking, look, there's a change going on here. He couldn't get his head round that the prophecy that he was so into, Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 and 4, that this had not been fulfilled as he had planned, as he, as it seems pretty clear in the scriptures, it was going to happen. Now, my view of prophecy is that it's open-ended. That is that God may state certain things, like he stated at the end of Ezekiel, about the commands for a temple to be built when the exiles return from, from captivity. But due to human failure, human lack of response, repentance, zeal, uh, preaching the gospel, etc., sometimes those things that are predicted uh, don't happen. So then, that doesn't mean that God's word is faulty. It means that there are preconditions to the fulfillment of that word that may or may not have been made explicit. Jonah. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. In 40 days, Nineveh was not destroyed. There was no apparent precondition to that. There wasn't a rider that said, uh, and if they repent, it, will, it won't happen. Just said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days, Nineveh, Nineveh was not destroyed. Why? Because they had repented. And God was sensitive to that. And God is not ashamed to, to change his stated purpose concerning a person. It's a wonderful thing with God. 
What it means then is that prophecy is not in that sense chronologically predictive and set in stone. That doesn't mean that God's word is not reliable. It will come true. But it may not come true in the form that was originally and ideally envisaged. Now, John the Baptist, like I think a lot of people, uh, hadn't figured that. He thought, okay, Isaiah 40, I'm going to be the uh, Elijah prophet, the voice in the wilderness. Everyone's going to come, repent, uh, and uh, they're going to get ready for the way of the Lord, that they're going to be the way of the Lord. And on that way, on that highway, Messiah will come. So there he is out in the wilderness, preaching repentance. And amazingly, all Jerusalem and Judea go out to him. He baptizes them. And it all seems hunky-dory. And then Messiah comes. Jesus comes, his cousin, who he knew. He'd said, this is the one. He comes. But then something goes wrong. Uh, and he's got this question, wait a minute, is this really true? Is this really, you know, am I just tripping? Am I, am I just imagining things? And I think his problem was that he couldn't see that actually... And although that was the ideal outline chronologically of events in God's uh, purpose and plan, according to Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 and 4, in fact, Israel had not repented as they should have done, and they had not listened to John's message about Jesus because none of them had really accepted, or the majority had not accepted Jesus as Messiah. They just saw him as a miracle worker, and uh, etc., interesting teacher, and so forth. Um, and so, therefore, the whole thing has been delayed in its fulfillment. As Jesus says here in Matthew 11, if you will receive it, this is Elijah, talking about John the Baptist. For those who, like the disciples, did accept his message and did go to Jesus and accept Jesus as the Son of God and the Lamb of God, then, yes, John was Elijah to those people. But the main thrust of the prophecy has got to be fulfilled at another time, in another context. And it's going to be, it seems to me, in the last days of the coming of an Elijah prophet to prepare Israel and to prepare them for uh, the actual physical, visible return of Jesus. But even that might not work out. Because in, in, in the end of Malachi 4, it says that the Elijah prophet's going to come and, and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, lest he smite the earth or the land with a curse. And yet, there's plenty of evidence that the Lord is going to smite the land, as in the land promised to Abraham, with a curse in the last days. There's Bible verses that say that. So it could even be that, that final appeal of the Elijah prophet is not going to work out, and the Lord is going to have to smite the land, of the land promised to Abraham, uh, with a curse. And that is actually what's going to finally bring whoever's left of the remnant of Israel to repent and accept Jesus, and then finally he shall come. So then, so many people have had problems in their faith when prophetic sequences don't work out. I remember very clearly, 40 years after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, was 1988. And some of us got so convinced that this generation shall not pass away, the Lord's words. So this applied to the state of Israel, and the generation is definitely 40 years. Christ must come in 1988. And there we were in 1986, 87, 88, uh, preaching campaigns, uh, standing up, giving talks about it. Uh, fortunately, didn't have uh, much video in those days, so uh, 
fortunately not recorded, but you know, so into it, and what happened by the end of 1988? Well, it didn't happen, did it? Uh, but still, you know, some way down the track uh, from there now, and it still hasn't happened. Now, there's some people who lose their faith because of that. You know what, there's men I know in their 60s and 70s and 80s who now don't believe. And yet they spent much of their lives very zealous preachers, always on about prophecy about this, that and the other. And their little uh, prophetic pictures didn't come true. The Soviet Union is going to invade Israel, that's what Ezekiel 38 says. No, wrong, Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, the party's over, etc. Didn't happen. And yet, with great dogmatism, this apparently appeared to be the way. And maybe they were right. Maybe that is what God was going to do. But for various reasons, it didn't work out. Various preconditions weren't met. So therefore, the prophetic fulfillment was delayed, was reinterpreted, was reapplied in another way. God's word comes true, but in another way. And so, that's, I think, the the lesson for us. Now, I would also like to point out that when you read the words of Zacharias, that is John the Baptist's father in Luke 1, from 71 to 79, when he's rejoicing about having a son, etc., it would be true to say that he seemed to have somewhat of the wrong idea. He seemed to think that his son was definitely going to be the precursor to the establishment of the messianic kingdom there and then in his sons, that is, in John's lifetime. And he definitely seems to associate his own son, John, with the uh, obtaining of freedom from our enemies, throwing off the yoke of Rome. And he even seems to talk about John as being a means to forgiveness of sin. So his father, Zacharias, had a mixed up understanding, let's put it that way, about the nature of the Elijah prophet. It seemed to get the Elijah prophet and Messiah mixed up, which is common in Judaism anyway, though they seem to mix them up. And he also seemed to have his timescale out. He seemed to be absolutely confident and thankful to God that you've given me this little child, John, uh, and he is going to be the herald of the messianic kingdom, the messianic kingdom is going to come thanks to him. He's going to just sort of held it in. Well, that didn't happen. And in terms of freedom from our enemies, well, that is not what uh, John nor the Lord Jesus achieved during their lifetimes. So there's nothing wrong with Zacharias. He's going to be in the kingdom. But I'm saying that the record, I think, purposefully records his misunderstandings to help us understand why John himself had these misunderstandings. I am not Elijah, he says, and yet he was Elijah. He talks as if he's Elijah in other places, and so on and so forth. He has these questions, is Jesus the Messiah that should come? Is he the Elijah prophet that should come? Was I just the herald of the Elijah prophet, or am I the herald of, uh, of Messiah? Right, he had all these problems of understanding and interpretation, which his father also had. And yet, these people, Zechariah and John, are going to be in God's kingdom. Even though clearly, John lived out his father's expectations, 
uh, a bit too deeply, and because his father's expectations are mixed up, so were his. Um, and yet, God still accepted them. So this idea that you've got to have perfect understanding you know, in order to have fellowship with God, this is, this is nonsense. So then, the Lord Jesus uh, says to these two disciples, go and tell John all the messianic miracles that are being done. Uh, clearly this was fulfilling the, uh, the, the prophecies about the messianic kingdom. In other words, he's saying, look, don't you see that those Isaiah 35 prophecies about the messianic kingdom are being fulfilled in, in uh, embryo, in a small way, in me. Surely that's a proof that I am, that I am Messiah. And he gives one specific, one specific sign, verse 5, that should persuade John that he was Messiah. He says, and to the poor the gospel is preached. Now, it's as if that was as significant and remarkable a sign that he was Messiah as, for example, uh, healing people. In those days, religion was really a hobby for the middle class and the wealthy. Because it's only them who really had spare time and money for it. And teachers went around not bothering with the poor people because they couldn't give them any money. They went straight for the middle class and the wealthy. Let's get them on side so they can support me, so I can carry on my, my, my work as they saw it. Yet Jesus begins his manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 verse 3, by saying, blessed are the poor. And his whole uh, approach was to the poor. Luke 4.18, the Spirit was upon the Lord Jesus exactly because he preached the gospel to the poor. James 2.5 is clear that it is the poor of this world, rich in faith, whom God has chosen. And God has told us then very clearly, uh, by direct statement and by implication so many times in Scripture, that the majority of people who shall respond are the poor. Therefore, we should go to the poor. And yet, most churches today don't do that. For one thing, just on a practical basis, most churches are the domain of the middle class and the wealthy, relatively speaking. They are. And if those uh, halls were flooded, those church halls are flooded with poor people, you know, there's a cloud of cigarette smoke outside the, uh, the the entrance of the hall, or even, dare I say, in the toilets inside the hall. Uh, there will be this and that and the other, and people will just walk out. You know, I've, we've seen it. We've seen it, and this happens time and again. It's not only in my observation. I've heard this so many times. Oh yeah, we started a feeding scheme, and all these poor people started coming. And then we lost our church. Our congregation all broke up. People said, oh, I'm not coming in there. It stinks. Some of them have got tuberculosis. I'm not sitting next to someone who's coughing TB all over me, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so then they go off and have their little white middle-class church, or even black middle-class church as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but my point is that, that, that the, the, the church is not for the poor. And you get big numbers of poor people in, people are basically, I'm gone. I'm out of here. And... So it is, certainly with a lot of standard Protestant churches, that they're so into money, because they've got to pay a pastor, and they've got to pay all this, etc., that they can't afford for that to happen. And actually, they're doing the same as what happened in the first century. They're going to the middle class and the wealthy. 
you, yes, please, sir, you're most welcome. And yes, but, you know, please tithe and please this, that and the other. They don't want poor people who can't put anything in the collection bag, unfortunately. And yet the Lord was quite different. His whole thrust of his message was to the poor. And this was very different to religion in his day. It was so different that he says to the disciples of John the Baptist, go and, go and tell all this to John, because my focus on the poor is what is so remarkable, as remarkable as the unprecedented healings that I'm doing. And then he says, and blessed is he who shall not be made to stumble in me, verse 6. And so he's saying to John, be careful, my brother, that you don't stumble. John was near to stumbling. And uh, I think he was near to stumbling because Jesus was not working out as he had expected. He had expected to see his father's, that's uh, John's father, Zacharias's, uh, expectations fulfilled. That there would be freedom from the Jews, uh, from the Romans, uh, that the whole thing was going to happen immediately. Clearly that wasn't happening. Clearly that was not happening. Um, and we meet the same idea about being offended about Jesus, about the people of Nazareth, the Lord's hometown. This is in Matthew 13, 57. It says that they were offended by Jesus uh, when he started to proclaim himself, basically, um, as Messiah. And specifically, it is his crucifixion which was a cause of offense, of stumbling to people. People were offended because he was smitten. Matthew 26, verse 31, he says, I'm going to be smitten, I'm going to be crucified, and you shall be made to stumble, be offended. The cross was therefore a rock of offense uh, to many. Why? Why was specifically the crucifixion such a, a cause of stumbling? Why did John the Baptist stumble? Uh, nearly stumble anyway. Why do the people of Nazareth who had known Jesus, why did they stumble when he declares himself to be Messiah, basically? I think it's because in each case, Jesus turned out to be not the Messiah whom they had expected. He was a disappointment to them. They were all revved up because they were thinking that Messiah is going to be such and such person, and actually in reality he was different. They expected him to come with armies of angels and great big beefy Jewish soldiers behind him uh, to kick out the Romans, and instead he comes with a ragtag uh, bunch of fishermen and uh, ex-prostitutes and goodness knows what kind of women hanging around, um, and says, you know, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, which is all about forgiving your enemies, uh, etc. Et like, no, 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 no. We like the miracles, but... No, 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 we, that's not the Messiah that we expected. And therefore it turns to anger. It's rather like falling in love with the idea of a person rather than the person themselves. Now, I don't claim to be any professional counsellor or anybody, but just uh, by uh, dint of uh, being how I am and who, who I am, I, I just you know, run the church here in, in Riga, I get really quite a common issue really a, a lot of people over the years have come to me uh, about a year into their marriage and the marriage is in crisis 
And I've known these people, I knew them when they were dating each other, and they were all over each other, got married, that's great. And now that there they are, we're sitting there in a, in a cafe somewhere having a coffee, and, you know, it's cold as ice, and uh, what happened? To the point now that when I do a wedding or, or to, you know, have a chat with people before they get married, I say, look here, you're in love with each other, you're going to get married. Yeah, but you know what? You're going to get pretty well married again after about a year. Because, well, I hope you do, because you're going to find that that person that you married is uh, not the person you think they are. You're going to find that there's actually another person, and you're actually going to have to marry that person. In, you know, this could be six months, up to two years, that's what you're going to have to do. And this is a huge problem. Dashed expectations, falling in love with the idea of a person, and then... When reality dawns and the in-love period is ended, oh, it's not who I thought it was. And then the anger starts. And this is exactly what happened with the Lord. They would not accept that Messiah had come to die on a Roman cross, to be rejected by the leaders of the temple uh, and the Jewish religious system, to save sinners, working class, ordinary people, uh, and uh, prostitutes and tax collectors and the like. They, they couldn't accept that. And that's why they stumbled, because he was not as they expected. Now, this again is a common problem, that people want God and they want Jesus to be as they think they should be. So people will say, oh, I could never accept a Jesus who won't save anybody. Oh, I could never accept a Jesus who, uh, who doesn't agree with homosexuals or a Jesus who uh, who thinks that uh, I don't know, it's uh, it, it's a sin to uh, join the military or whatever, like you know, whatever. Uh, in other words, they got their idea of who Jesus is, and if the Bible reveals Jesus to be another, there's a lot of anger and offence and a lot of psychological ripples going on. This is the 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 wonder of accepting the Bible as inspired that. It's not the Jesus or the God who we imagine. It's the God whom God's word reveals. That is the true Jesus, the only Jesus. And that's the true God. And so many people are offended exactly because of this. Now just note in passing that the Lord Jesus did offend people. And yet he says that if you offend someone, you shall be condemned. Just uh, try and put that teaching together. Um... I suppose you could say that uh, his teaching about not offending little ones um, has some riders to it. In other words, that, as James says, in many things we offend all, but you've got to be careful that you don't use your tongue to do that. That's what he seems to be saying in, in James. Um, or it could be, quite simply, that not everything that is true of Jesus has to be true of us. He can offend people, just like God can strike people dead. But we can't do that. And I find that particularly helpful in struggling with the idea of forgiving others. That God, it seems, has the ability to press a button and that person is forgiven and that's it. Whereas it seems harder for us to do that. Forgiveness for us seems to be a process. uh, Rather than a momentary uh, action that somehow ends the person's uh, record. That's just uh, just in passing. So the Lord says, verse 7, So what did you go out 
into the wilderness to see. Now he says this three times in verses 7 to 9. He went out into the wilderness to see. And it's uh, to go out to see in classical Greek is used about going to a show. And I think that he's, uh, he's recognizing they made a lot of effort. They had to leave Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and go out some days, travel maybe, into the desert. And it was not easy to do that. But you went out to see. And I wonder if the emphasis is on you went to look rather than to listen to his word. Now, of course, the Lord is alluding to that they went out into the wilderness. He's alluding to the fact that um, Isaiah had prophesied that in the wilderness, in the desert, the way for the king of glory was to be prepared. And he, he says, but what did you see? Did you see a reed shaken with a wind? No, you saw John. Now, I think he's alluding there to the reeds in the River Jordan, which were quite well known, where John was baptizing. So he's saying, when you went out to be baptized, you weren't just looking at the reeds blowing in the wind. You were looking at John. And he's saying, look, <clears throat> no matter what crisis John has got now as a person, remember who he was then. And compare him favorably, I think he's saying, to Herod. And I think uh, Herod had just uh, published, you know, just minted these coins with a reed on them. And I, I wonder if the Lord is, is purposefully saying, look, compare Herod with John. There's no comparison. And those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That was Herod, clearly enough. John, we know, did not wear soft clothing. He, uh, he had rugged, uh, coarse clothing. So I think what the Lord is saying is, look, remember who John was. And bear that in mind. Don't jump on the fact that at this minute he's got a crisis of understanding and faith. And another thing that comes out of this is to believe the message rather than the messenger. Now I know that in, in the basics of human psychology, the medium is the message. And so therefore we tend to connect the, uh, the messenger with the message. And if the messenger goes wrong, then we tend to think, well, the message must be bunk as well. But that's not so. If you accept the word of God, and again we come back to this basic fact of God's word, because if that person is merely a channel of God's word, well, maybe they, they're a bad guy. That's okay. Uh, even if they, like John, and end their days under a cloud or under some sort of uh, personal crisis, okay, that makes no difference. Believe the message that they gave you. The messenger is neither here nor there. And yet, unfortunately, because people don't, or all of us, tend not to really accept the Word of God as purely as the Word of God uh, as we should, we therefore all tend to mix the medium with the message. And therefore, the messenger becomes so significant to us. <clears throat> and the Lord says, basically, this man was more than a prophet. He was the greatest of the prophets. This is he. Uh, <clears throat> verse 10, Of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He's saying, look, this was Elijah. This is the Elijah prophet. Uh, quoting there out of, uh, out of Malachi. And yet John had said, when they asked him, Are you Elijah? He said, No, I'm not. 
Jesus is saying that he was. So, I think that's either John's misunderstanding or John's humility that led him to deny he was uh, Elijah or his, uh, his basic confusion or maybe weakness of faith. Oh, if they think I'm Elijah, they're going to expect this, that and the other from me. Just says, no, nah, guys, no, I'm not. Maybe it was just a temporary failure. All these are possibilities that I, I leave with you. Um, <clears throat> now, I think the, the Lord is saying, look, whether he admitted it or not, whether John accepted it or not, he was the Elijah prophet, and therefore I am uh, the Messiah. So again he's saying, look, judge this man by how he was, by what he did in the course of his life. Not by the fact that he ends slightly confused, or very confused really, uh, in some sort of crisis of faith and understanding. He's a great man, and recognize him, please, as such. Don't be so hard on the failure of the moment that is right in front of you. Try to see the guy in the wider context. And as I said earlier, that's how God treated Gideon, that's how God treated so many of the, the kings of Israel and Judah. Now, <clears throat> he shall prepare, uh, verse 10, your way uh, before you. Uh, it's quoting from Hebrews, it's from Malachi 3, verse 1. And uh, back there, there's a, a wordplay, because the Hebrew word for prepare, panar, means literally to turn the face. It's used in Genesis 18, verse 22, where the angels turn their face towards Sodom. So then, uh, panar is translated there, uh, prepare, but it means to turn the face. Uh, he shall prepare the way before you, before your face, panim. So, what Malachi is saying is that the work of the Elijah prophet was to turn the faces of people to the face of God. Now, that in practice happened in that the Lord Jesus, although he was not God himself, as the supreme manifestation of God, was the face of God uh, to this world. We behold the glory of God, as Paul later put it, in the face of Jesus Christ. So I think the Lord is saying here, look, he did such a great work. His job was to turn the faces of men and women to the face of God. Now, that's what he did. Even if he did it for, let's say, he, 20 people, let's say the disciples and a few others, uh, the 12 disciples and say some women, maybe that was all the people out of the whole lot who actually got the point and accepted Jesus as Lamb of God, Son of God, etc. Um, okay, but that was such a fantastic achievement, he's saying, even if all the rest of it didn't work out. Respect him for that. And there is, by the way, I think a lovely little window into the just the altogether lovely character of the Lord uh, in verse 11, where he says, Among those that are born of, woman, of women, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. And yet Galatians 4 verse 4, the Lord Jesus was born of women. He was born of a woman, born under the law. You can scribble that in your margin there by verse 11. Uh, them that are born of women. There is not a greater than John the Baptist. Well, actually, Jesus also, Galatians 4, 4, was also born of a woman. 
Now, Jesus doesn't say, uh, amongst those born of women, there has not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, apart from me, of course. He doesn't say the obvious. Uh, he was the greatest, of course. Jesus himself was the greatest of the prophets, the prophet like unto Moses, um, born of a woman, born under the law, uh, and yet he doesn't say that. And I think that's, uh, that's, the, that's just lovely. But the least, he says, of <clears throat> those in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John the Baptist. And I understand that uh, the least of those who will be in the kingdom, the, the littlest ones in the kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist was in this life. Now it's just said in Matthew 10.42, not so long ago, um, that the disciples are the little ones, and it's the same word. So he must have in view the disciples, the, the little ones. And he's saying to the disciples, look, do you know what? You are going to be greater than the Elijah prophet. And in the context of Judaism, that idea was that um, really the Elijah prophet and the prophets were sort of untouchable. And the Lord is saying, but you are actually greater than them. And he, he says, goes on in this difficult verse in verse 12, uh, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers uh, violence, and the violent take it by force. Well, you could say that he's constructing a parable uh, from the idea of Roman stormtroopers taking a city. And he's saying that really those who have believed from the time of John the Baptist are now bravely going forward and, and grabbing the, the kingdom. The kingdom of God is preached, Luke 16, 16, and every man presses into it. So that would be a very gracious thing to say, because the disciples come over as very uncertain, misunderstanding, misplaced ideals, etc. And yet the Lord is saying that, no, that actually you guys are going right forward to take the kingdom for yourselves. You're, Luke 16, you're pressing into it. So he wasn't preaching, was he? Painless, passive membership of a church community. By using this kind of parable, he's saying that, no, that is not the case at all. And yet, there's another interpretation possible. And the thought arises from the way that this word that's uh, translated, uh, take it by force, verse 12, is found in John 6, 15, where the multitude want to take Christ by force and make him king. Now, you could say that he's saying, well, those who want the kingdom of God to come in a political sense right now, who would love to, to force it, um, are actually doing violence to the kingdom. Um, <clears throat> that's uh, up to you to choose what interpretation you you go for. And I'd like to conclude today uh, with 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. So that's an explanation, it seems, of the cutoff point between the time of the kingdom and the time of the law and the prophets. He's saying that John is the cutoff point, that they prophesied until him. In other words, they were all fulfilled in, in him. It's as if their work was being done until John. In other words, as if the things of the kingdom were going to come true at the time of John the Baptist. And yet, there are other changeover points that seem to be implied. 
in Matthew 5, verse 18, we're, we're told that uh, the Lord has not taken away anything out of the law, um, but he has come to fulfill the law, to finish the law. When did he fulfill the law? Surely, when on the cross he, he shouted, it is finished. The whole thing was fulfilled in his death on the cross. Not at the time of John, but a few years later. And quite clearly, quite a, there's quite a bit of theological argument made in the New Testament that it was the death of Jesus which ended the old, brought in the new. Of course, when he died, the, the veil of the temple rent, uh, the whole way into the holiest was made manifest. And yet, in Hebrews 8.13, it speaks about how the old system is decaying and becoming old and is about to vanish away. Surely it has in mind AD 70. And there seems to have been the permission for Jewish believers to have kept the law. And yet in AD 70 you could say the whole thing really did uh, end uh, in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Why this vagueness? Why these various changeover points? Well, I think it's because, as I said earlier, God's purpose is to some degree open-ended. I mean, if Israel had accepted John's message, repented out there in the wilderness, the way had been prepared for Jesus, John said, right, here's Jesus, oh, great, that's Jesus. They accept Jesus as their king and their saviour, they of course wouldn't murder him, wouldn't kill him because he's their saviour and their king. You know, the whole, the whole prophetic program could have worked out totally differently. But it didn't. Now, at times... People come up with interpretations of prophecy, and I mentioned the idea of the generation that saw the, 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 the blossoming of the fig tree uh, in 1948, it seems, uh, not passing away. You know, at the time, that seemed a pretty watertight interpretation of prophecy, and maybe it was. But why didn't the Lord come? Because of various human factors. The gospel's got to go into all the world, and then shall the end come. Well, we hadn't taken the gospel to all the world by then. There must be some repentance in Israel. Wasn't there. So, what I'm saying is that we can get ourselves in deep spiritual problems. If like John, or like so many people, we've got this uh, sort of deterministic, predictive view of prophecy, whereby all these things must chronologically fall into place. You don't want to end like John, having lived a life for the Lord, and just sitting in your room uh, facing death at the end, full of doubts and fears and misunderstanding and basically saved by grace. No, no, no. He that shall come will come. But when he shall come is not the final point. Uh, God's purpose is to some degree open, but that is not to say that his word shall not be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. It may uh, be fulfilled in different ways to that which he himself originally envisaged and desired. But it shall come true. And it's for us to work with that. And you see it in your own life that maybe the ideal was plan A, that you should have gone this way in your life, but you didn't. You went to one side. Okay, but God still took you on that path, and he then wanted you to go that way, but you veered that way. But uh, all right, the Lord still held on to you, and in the end, he's guiding us all through into his kingdom.